0: Well, good morning. Uh, well, some of you may have heard that, uh, I think it was on Thursday, Governor Little uh, has initiated or kind of presented a plan for reopening our state. And uh, we're, we're looking into what all the implications of that are for our Sunday morning worship services. And hopefully find out more details regarding that. We'll have information for you this week, so be sure to check your emails uh, just for what we communicate and send out, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, no longer meet in this way, uh, but to be able to to see uh, and experience uh, one another's fellowship, and initially it may be experiencing that fellowship uh, six feet apart from one another, uh, and so we have a lot to uh, to think through uh, even as we prepare to, to rejoin uh, together. Uh, and then another uh, announcement, because of all of these uh, coronavirus delays and uh, stay-at-home order stuff, we uh, have been kind of working and reflecting, and we, we weren't sure when we were going to be able to uh, to start meeting again. And so right now what we have done is we have rescheduled our members meeting, which was scheduled for the first Sunday in June. We've rescheduled that to be uh, that first Sunday in August and we'll have more information for you uh, there and we kind of reason that we're putting it that far out is hopefully uh, all of this will be cleared up by then and we'll have several weeks of uh, meeting together and and just being able to, to plan and prepare uh, for that. We didn't want to have an annual meeting that we weren't gathered together for so uh, more information will be forthcoming but just wanted to put that on your radar and bring that to your attention that that meeting has been postponed uh, until later on in the summer. But uh, if you have your copy of God's Word there with you at home, which I'm sure that you do, you can open with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations is a short book uh, immediately after the prophet Jeremiah, which we've been reading uh, this month uh, in our growth groups. And as you are turning there, uh, it was on uh, September 1st, 1939, that Nazi Germany invaded... Poland, and that act traditionally marks the beginning of World War II. And over the course of the Nazi occupation uh, of Poland, uh, the capital city of Warsaw was absolutely decimated, and the Nazis systematically killed what is estimated to be eight hundred thousand. Poles and Jews uh, from 1939 and 1945, just in that one city, uh, 800,000, which amounts to about 60% of the population of that city. And in addition to the extermination of the people, there were orders to lay waste to the city itself. And part of this was in response to two uprisings during uh, the Nazi occupation. One was uh, in the Jewish ghetto, where the, the Jews uh, rebelled against their, uh, uh, the the Germans in control of them. And then also there was another uh, uprising by the the Polish resistance, and that one occurred on August 1st, 1944. And it uh, it was eventually uh, defeated. Uh, the, and uh, there's a uh, suspicion that the, the the Russian leadership or the Soviet leadership at that time allowed it to fail because Joseph Stalin wasn't a, a big fan of the Polish people either, and he wanted them to be exterminated. But uh, after the Germans quelled that rebellion of the, the Polish resistance, the they gave orders to to just rain artillery onto the city of Warsaw itself, so uh, the the rebellion was was squashed. But they said we're gonna make a we're gonna make a statement here. We we are going to exact vengeance. Uh, and it is estimated that at the end of the war, about ninety percent of the city of Warsaw, the capital of Poland, had been destroyed. Uh, now again, not because there was an abundance of fighting that took place there. but but simply out of malice and out of uh, vengeance and spite from the Nazis. And it's hard for us to fathom that type of destruction, right? Living uh, when we do and where we do. It's it's hard to imagine an entire city uh, being leveled and, and destroyed. And the Polish people living during that time are not the only people or the only generation that has experienced that type of of destruction upon their their nation, their capital city, and upon their people. And as we look at the book of Lamentations today, that book is going to to transport us to another people and another time uh, when a city and a nation was destroyed. And uh, this short book of five chapters was written by the prophet Jeremiah shortly after. The Babylonians had come for a third time into the land of Judah, and they had laid waste and defeated and conquered uh, the people of Judah. Uh, and this third trip into Judah is when they destroyed Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And I always imagine Jeremiah, as, as I read this book that he wrote, I, I imagine him sitting on a, a mountaintop overlooking the rubble and the destruction uh, of his city that he, as he's writing this and as he's weeping and, and lamenting that he is seeing the fires that continue to, to burn in his city and just uh, imagining the despair that he would have felt as he uh, experiences uh, w- along with his people the, the judgment of God. And you, you might not be that familiar with the book of Lamentations, but th- this book uh, has so much to say uh, about suffering, about loss, about uh, grief, but also at the same time about trust and faith and the character of God in the middle of difficult circumstances in life. And I, So I think this book is especially helpful in dealing with how we as believers are called to respond to suffering how we can grieve and mourn and ultimately still place our hope and our trust in the sovereign God who loves and cares for his people and I know this has been just a unique time in world history right? there's this virus out there we're not sure what is going to happen and our cities aren't being laid waste right now uh, but it, there's been a whole lot of uncertainty, and there has been uh, suffering in terms of job loss, and, and who knows what the future holds uh, with so many things being shut down. But what we're going to to see so much here in Lamentations is that God is still worthy of our trust and our adoration and our worship, even if suffering comes our way, and A little bit of a background to Lamentations, this is a a funeral dirge. This is a a song, a poetic uh, wording to express sorrow, to to vent emotions, and ultimately uh, something that we don't see too often in our time and our culture. It is intended to guide the grief, not only of Jeremiah, but also of the people of Jerusalem, whose, whose city has been... Destroyed, and again, of oftentimes, when we are grieving, we are kind of driven any which way, our feelings and our emotions are causing us to feel like we're we're spinning all over the place out of control and what's amazing that the way that the Lord led Jeremiah to write this book is that there's order amid the chaos, so to speak, of that even as Jeremiah is full of all of these emotions he he writes the book uh to To present uh with certainty where God uh, is going, and yet uh even in the midst of that certainty there is uncertainty. If you turn to the end of the book, chapter five, and you look at verses uh twenty and following, Jeremiah ends with this questioning, this doubt. he says, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored' renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us so there's this kind of this dot 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 at the end of the book where it just shows Jeremiah's own questioning and doubt of God are you still there have you forgotten us but the emphasis of the book uh, is not upon the the end of the book it's its focus is in the middle of the book and wh- what's interesting is again as i said that Usually when you're grieving, you're all over the place, but this book is so ordered, but it also has disorder with it. The first four chapters, each uh, are focused around the Hebrew alphabet. They're all acrostics. Uh, There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and uh, the the first uh, four chapters are built around uh, each of those 22 Hebrew letters. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 have 22 verses in them. Uh, and they're all acrostics, so each verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And chapter 5 isn't an acrostic, but it also has 22 verses, so that structure is very similar. And then chapter 3, which seems to be the emphasis, rather than just doing a, a single acrostic, uh, it's a triple acrostic. So there's groups of three verses, uh, and each one of those verses begins with a, a letter of the alphabet, and Jeremiah just moves through the alphabet. And so there's this, there's this structure to Jeremiah's grief. And again, it's intended to, to, to steer him and the people of Judah and Jerusalem out of their grief and towards the Lord. And chapter three, because it has 66 verses rather than 22, it becomes the the centerpiece of the book. And, uh, what I want to do is we're going to parachute down into, uh, Lamentations chapter three and we're going to to start reading in verse 13 and as we read these verses just listen to Jeremiah's description of his own pain uh, of all that he is uh, enduring and how he he feels his, his depression and his his physical anxiety and all of these things and so read along with me beginning in verse 13 and as we read i'm going to to read the divine name which in your bibles is the lord in all caps i'm going to read that as Yahweh. So don't be confused. You're like, my Bible doesn't say that, but that's how I'm going to, to read it. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 13. He, speaking of God, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has stated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth Grind on gravel, and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from Yahweh. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And so verse 21 is going to set the stage for what we're going to study this morning. What is it that Jeremiah calls to mind? What is it that he remembers uh, and that initiates him to have hope even as he looks out uh at all of the destruction in his city, all of the people that have been taken away and taken away to a foreign land uh and all of the other lives that have been taken as the Babylonians have come in and conquered his city. Yet in the middle of that, he says this is what he has called to mind and this is why he has hope. Verse 22, The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Yahweh is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And what we see here... As Jeremiah is writing this, again, he's writing this for the benefit of his own soul, but also for the benefit of his people to guide their grief. And what we see here are Jeremiah's thoughts about judgment, about loss, about suffering, sin, and the character of God. And these are Jeremiah's reflections upon his own suffering and the suffering of his people. And this is going to be really helpful for us to to look at and study this morning Jeremiah's reflections upon suffering because suffering is a shared experience across uh, all humanity and all history. That uh, you have either suffered in the past, you are suffering now, or you will suffer in the future. And again, I'm not a, a prophet, but that is just the way of life here on the earth. And so it is good at times to turn our thoughts and our attention to the reality of suffering. And if we don't do that now, again, if we may be caught off guard later. and We don't know how to handle suffering unless we have put some, some time and some thought into reflecting upon it. And again, it is good and wise for us to reflect upon suffering. Uh, and, and there are a variety of causes of suffering. And... and uh really they fall into three major categories one is suffering that we experience just living in a fallen world and that's kind of where this coronavirus is right now right we we live in a fallen world where where viruses exist uh, and we are dealing with the outcome of that uh right now but then there is also suffering that comes as a result of living with other sinners uh, and that people sin against us. And most of you are saying amen at home, especially as you've been cooped up uh, in your house with your family for many, many weeks on end. And you feel like you have lost your sanctification and are currently searching for it. Uh So living in a fallen world, living in a, a world with other sinners, and then also experiencing the results of our own sin. And as we read Lamentations, and well, we, we have to, I guess, keep in mind that that Jerusalem and the people of Judah are experiencing the judgment of God. They're experiencing the results of their own sin. But just because that is the, the cause of their suffering it doesn't mean that these principles overarchingly regarding suffering don't, don't apply to us and aren't helpful to us. No, no matter what the the root cause of our suffering uh God is going to to use that in a particular way and and this is really important how we respond to and handle suffering depends completely upon our view and our understanding of God okay our our view of God determines how we will respond to <clears throat> suffering and we must know and believe And trust that God is absolutely sovereign, infinitely wise, and perfect in love. And we are called to trust in him. Again, we've talked about those overarching principles of trusting in God's sovereignty in the middle of suffering. But but Jeremiah is not immediately going to turn to those big overarching thoughts. He's going to turn to some smaller thoughts. You could say, uh, what other thoughts might be encouraging to us in the middle of our suffering? And the Bible is full of many, many thoughts. Uh, many, many truths that we can think about in the middle of suffering. Uh, and we can't look at all of those today. But for our purposes, we're going to limit what we're looking at. Of Hey, what thoughts can we turn to in the middle of suffering? Uh, and what we're going to find in verses 22 to 33 here in Lamentations 3 are four reflections on suffering that are good for us to contemplate, that are good for us to have prepared in our own hearts, in our own minds, uh, that we might turn to those truths and have them with us when we experience suffering both now and in the future. And since... Uh, in these twelve verses, it's, the structure is already laid out, as I said, Jeremiah groups these verses in packages of three. Uh, we're gonna see four reflections, and, and the first reflection is gonna be found in verses 22 to 24, and this reflection that, from the Jeremiah, is that the mercies of God are infinite. The mercies of God are infinite. And look with me again at those verses. Jeremiah says the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And if you are familiar with any verses in the book of Lamentations, it is more than likely these verses uh, that you are familiar with. They have been a a great source of comfort uh, to Christians over many years of church history. And... These are the truths that Jeremiah calls to mind. The truths about God's character. This is what initiates and prompts the hope that he proclaims. It's who God is. And the overarching idea behind these three verses is Yahweh's acts of covenant mercy towards Israel. His covenant acts, his steadfast covenant-keeping, loving-kindness. Uh, and that, that word that you see there that's translated by the, the ESV is steadfast love. The NASV probably has loving kindness. That's a, that's a such a loaded word in the Hebrew that is so significant and it's, it's connected with covenant keeping love. And, and so Jeremiah is reflecting upon the covenant keeping steadfast love of Yahweh. Uh, and that is what prompts him to have hope. And what he's doing, he's really reflecting upon the truth of Scripture. And again, this goes back to God's self-description of himself back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Very important verses. Uh, in those verses, says, Yahweh passed before him, him being Moses, uh, and proclaimed, this is God describing himself, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And in the context of those verses, Exodus 34, the Israel, back in Exodus 32, they had just rebelled against God. They had just turned to an idol. Aaron led them in idolatry with a golden calf. Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting instruction from the Lord. And they turn away from God and they break the covenant that they just made with him in Exodus 24. Uh, they just got done saying, yes, Yahweh, we will obey you. We will be your people. And then immediately they break the covenant. And God's like, okay, Moses, I'm, I'm done with them. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, oh, Lord, please don't forget that these are your people. And it wasn't that God had forgotten, but that God was going to use Moses' prayer to accomplish his end goal. God cannot break his word. God is not a man that he should lie. And so the emphasis here is that in the same way that back then Moses prayed to the Lord, God, don't forget your people. Jeremiah is doing the same thing and taking heart from that because Jeremiah knows God won't forget his people, that God's not going to go back on his covenant love. He is going to remain faithful to his people, even when his people are unfaithful to him. Jeremiah is reflecting upon God's character. And even when there are times that God must judge the sin of his people, that doesn't mean that his covenant love comes to an end. His steadfast love never ceases. It never expires. It never runs its course. It's never consumed. It's never finished and completed. God's love will always be maintained, And the idea is that those acts of covenant mercy that he has with Israel are new and are fresh each and every day. And it's not like they were, were taken away but that they have always been here. The, the idea in the Hebrew is that these are this is the renewal of something that has already been in existence. This isn't God creating new mercies of, okay, those mercies are done with from the previous day, but no, they are refreshed and renewed each and every day. And each day dawns with the possibility of covenant renewal. All right. So what Jeremiah is saying is Israel... Was never so far gone that they couldn 't turn back to God in a single day they couldn 't turn back to God in repentance and obedience and that that God would accept them back immediately. All they needed to do was turn and you can think of it this way let 's say that you and a friend are, are at a beach that uh, the beaches are open oh, even that takes some imagination, uh, but the two of you uh, you 're there at the beach, you fall into an argument and there's some harsh words that are expressed and and that go back and forth uh, and and it leads to a parting of ways and you turn your back on your friend and you start walking, kind of marching defiantly down the beach. And And as as you spend time walking away from your friend and, and you reflect on the conflict that's taken place, you, you begin to see your own sin in the course of that conflict and you actually begin to realize that, wait, this conflict was really all my fault, uh, that it was my anger, my harsh response, and you begin to be grieved by what you have done and to to. Re- Recall that your friend said that they would always accept you back, that that they that they uh, would reconcile with you at any point in time, and you, your guilt and your shame are now mixed with with sorrow, and you realize the pain that you've caused your friend, and as you're you're, you're walking still away from them, you, you realize that that you should turn around and and go back, but then you're like, oh man, I have so far to walk, to get back to my friend. I've gone so far away from them, I have a long journey to get back to them. But to your shock and surprise, the the moment you you turn around to pursue reconciliation with your friend, you you realize, hey, that, that friend is right there behind you. And you turn and you're there face to face with him. If that happened, what would that mean? Well, it means that even though you had this conflict with your friend and you began to walk away from them, what did they do? They they followed you that, that whole time. They were right there behind you. And all you needed to do to reconcile with them at any moment was just turn around. You didn't even need to take any steps back towards them because they were following and pursuing you. And that is what we see here that is what Jeremiah is saying that the merciful covenant keeping acts of God are refreshed and new each and every morning and all it takes is a a single turning around back to God you don't have this long journey to get back to God Israel didn't have that and we don't have that all the Lord calls us to is to turn back to him to to repent and believe to, to trust in him because he has been following us. That is what the mercy of God does towards us. That act of turning around is that combination of repentance and faith. Faith is that understanding, that acknowledgement. And, uh, Vincent was speaking about this this morning in the equipping hour. Uh, that faith is that, that realization that you must turn away from the direction that you're headed and you must turn to God. And repentance is the act of turning. Uh, and they're, they are inseparable. They go hand in hand. Two sides of the same coin. But again, what, what a blessing in, in knowing that the, the grace and the mercies of God, His compassions are pursuing us, even when we are walking away from Him. And Jeremiah is reflecting upon this, that God's mercies are new each and every day. there's not a, oh, I'm going to repent now, but I can't be reconciled to God uh, until a month from now and I've been walking back to him. No, each and every day we can turn back to the Lord. His offering of forgiveness and reconciliation always stands, and that is exactly what he does. He He forgives our sin and reconciles and makes peace with us if we turn to him. Uh, And what he has uh, in his word establishes that we turn to his son. We we look to his son, Jesus Christ, in faith because of what his son has accomplished on our behalf. We were sinners dead in our trespasses, separated from a holy God who loved us, right? But we have rebelled against him. We have walked away from him and now god has sent his son to live on our behalf and to die on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sins and then jesus rose on on the 3rd day on our behalf and now if we believe in him we're dead to sin and raised to newness of life but the key is we must repent and believe we must look to christ in faith and if we do that if if we look to christ in faith if we look to god then we will be able to echo what verse 24 says. That Yahweh is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in Him. When when we realize that God is enough, He is sufficient. He is my portion, my inheritance. That is what we can echo and say if we've placed our Faith and our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that is, again, Jeremiah is looking forward and anticipating that. But he's saying, God, I have nothing else in this life but you. And you are enough. And uh, even what he says there in verse 24 echoes what he said in verse 21. And therefore I will hope in him. Therefore I have hope uh, the, the beginning of having hope in the middle of suffering, regardless of the type of suffering, is dwelling and reflecting upon the character of God and realizing that the mercies of God are infinite. And that is the first truth that Jeremiah reflects on. That's the first truth that we are called to reflect on here. And the second truth that we should reflect on is found in those next three verses, 25 to 27. We could say this, that the suffering of man is beneficial. The suffering of man is beneficial. Look with me at those verses. So, Yahweh is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And if you notice as we read those verses... This theme of good appears and that's actually the Hebrew word tov that begins each one of those verses again this is an acrostic all three of the verses begin with the same letter and Jeremiah here does the same word and he says God's he speaks of Yahweh's good response to those who trust in him to those who seek him the idea of of searching and inquiring and expending effort in that search God is good to those who seek him and trust in him verse 26 uh, Jeremiah emphasizes the goodness of waiting quietly for Yahweh to help us, for Yahweh to deliver us. That's the idea of salvation. And then verse 27, the goodness of suffering in the life of a young man or, the young, or a young person. And that's something you probably don't think about too frequently, right? What is presented to us in these verses of how our suffering is good, it is beneficial to us. And the logic builds and advances over the course of the three verses because it begins in verse 25 saying that since Yahweh is good to all of those who wait for him, to those who seek him, then because Yahweh is good to those who seek him and trust in him, then it is a good thing, anything and everything, that would draw us to him. If, if it causes us to be dependent upon the Lord, it is a good and beneficial thing. That is the, the logic of Jeremiah. Be, because if we depend upon him, then Yahweh is good to us. Uh, and, and that process is the key of what Jeremiah is saying, that it is good to Wait. And again, those are words that we hardly ever hear, that we hardly ever say, and we hardly ever think. Usually it's exactly the opposite in our hearts and minds, right? That it is not good to wait. Why are you making me wait? When is this wait going to be over? That is our normal sinful attitude. But understanding and realizing that it is good for us, it is beneficial for us to wait upon the Lord for His help, for His deliverance in the middle of difficult circumstances and suffering. I love what Isaiah chapter 30 verse 15 says. It says, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. He says, In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Think about that. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And our waiting upon the Lord must be accompanied with trust. We wait silently upon God with an expectation of deliverance because there's also a a kind of waiting upon the Lord where we are waiting in despair. Uh, We are waiting in defeat uh, and depression but not looking to him with an expectation of hope. But this is what we are called to do is to place our hope, our trust in Yahweh and then to wait... Upon him, and and then verse twenty seven. I honestly just kind of wish verse twenty seven wasn't here uh, in in my own selfishness. And what Jeremiah says is just focusing on the importance of, of suffering as a youth, uh, and the, the yoke that he speaks of is suffering. And it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He says, it's good for for us as individuals to suffer and to have hardship when we are young. And wh- why does he say that? Well, when we are young, we have more strength, we have more energy and vigor. But, but then also, it, it teaches us at an early age, at a young age, to bear under difficult circumstances. Because as I said, suffering is a common experience across all of history and humanity. And it's just a matter of time before we suffer. And those who haven't suffered early, when trials come later in life, it it almost seems as if they they crumble because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle uh, any trials and and tribulations. And what Jeremiah is saying, that if you, you learn early to bear the yoke of suffering, you won't crumble under its weight later on in life. And it is... And amazing to to see how the Lord uses suffering in the lives of His people to teach us and to bring about good. And there are so many numerous of this in the Bible. You think of Joseph. When when did Joseph's suffering start? When he's he's seventeen, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. And he goes to another land, is serving as a slave in Potiphar's house, and then he gets falsely accused. So God's like, hey, Joseph, the, the, the suffering that you are currently enduring of being sold as a slave by your brothers is not enough. You need to go through more suffering. So I'm going to have you be falsely accused and then thrown into prison. Uh, and then I'm going to have you in prison for a couple of years, and then I'm going to get your hopes up. I'm going to have you interpret the dreams of the cupbearer uh and... uh one of the other officials of Pharaoh. And then uh, that official, after you help him, he's going to forget about you for two more years. But the Lord used all of that suffering in the life of Joseph to prepare him. Uh, and Genesis speak, sa- says that Joseph's understanding was that the Lord was using him to save lives, to preserve life, not only of uh, the chosen family, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also many lives there in Egypt and the surrounding lands because uh, all of that suffering in Joseph's life led him to be ready to endure and lead a nation through seven years of famine. God used all of that suffering in Joseph's life when he was young, and he used it for good and his benefit later. But also think about the Apostle Paul, when we are first introduced to him, uh, is at the end of Acts chapter seven, when the the deacon Stephen is martyred, says that the, the coats of those who were stoning Stephen placed their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So when we are first introduced to Saul, who would eventually become the Apostle Paul, he was a young man. Now, listen to these words as the Lord was going to save Saul and and intervene in his life and and call him to be an apostle. Uh, These are the words that God speaks to Ananias just before Paul comes to him in Damascus. This is Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, speaking of Saul, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So so we see that suffering was a, a large part of God's plan to mold and shape the Apostle Paul, and honestly, you and I are benefiting from Paul's suffering each and every day as we turn and open his word, and every single Christian in the church age has benefited from the Apostle Paul's suffering and his writings, even as we looked two weeks ago at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about Paul despairing of his life, but then still finding his hope in the Lord, and so, so we have so many examples of God using the suffering of a young person in Scripture. But all, let's not also forget the immediate context of Jeremiah. We've been studying this uh, this past month. That, that Jeremiah is also probably reflecting upon his own experience because he was called to serve God as a prophet more than likely when he was a teenager. When he was a young man, and we're starting to read through and see all of the trials, all of the, the persecution and, and suffering that Jeremiah experienced. That's why he got the nickname, the weeping prophet. You can also call him the complaining prophet. But he, the, the Lord used suffering in Jeremiah's life to bring about benefit to him. And you may say, oh, well, that's, that's great and that's good that the Lord used suffering in the lives of others. But... Listen to what the apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 applying this to the Philippians but also to us for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake that word for granted is the idea of a grace gift it has been gifted to us as believers that we get to suffer when we get to suffer for Christ and we get to suffer because we live in a fallen world. And we get to suffer because we we live with other sinners who are going to sin against us. And God will use our suffering beneficially in our lives because it, he will use that as an instrument to make us more and more like his son, Jesus. And I love what Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Trusting God. He says, you and I obviously do not seek out adversity just so that we can develop a deeper relationship with God. Rather, God, through adversity, seeks us out. It is God who draws us more and more into a deeper relationship with Him. If we are seeking Him, it is because He is seeking us. One of the strong cords with which He draws us into a more intimate, personal relationship with Him is adversity if instead of fighting god or doubting him in times of adversity we will seek to cooperate with god we will know or we will find that we will be drawn into a deeper relationship with him we will come to know him as abraham and job and david and paul came to know him and I love that point that the Lord seeks us through adversity through suffering, uh, and through our suffering, it is as as if God is reaching with His hand and drawing us to himself, and that because in that prompting of suffering, we turn and seek the Lord, and again that goes back when we seek the Lord, He is good to us, and that is that is the point here that the mercies of God are infinite and and the suffering of man is beneficial. Now, those are Jeremiah's first two reflections here. And the third, in verses 28 to 30, is that the suffering of man is humbling. The suffering of man is humbling. Let's read those verses together. It says, Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him seek I'm sorry, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults and this section builds upon the previous one there's a there's a logical connection that, so verse twenty seven it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth, and then Jeremiah gets specific in these three verses about what that looks like about bearing that yoke and how suffering uh what it accomplishes, and so if verses 25 to 27 emphasize that suffering is beneficial, verses 28 to 30 show what suffering accomplishes in our lives and why it is beneficial. And so that that is the the, the logical connection, and that the building here, in that when we are suffering, Jeremiah says it is good for us to to sit silently and endure it, to, to sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Uh, and what Jeremiah is saying here is also reflecting upon what has taken place in Jerusalem. If you turn to the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, the idea presented about Jerusalem is how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Right? So Jeremiah is saying it's it's good at times to sit alone and to sit quietly and to reflect upon what has taken place and what the Lord has brought into our lives. And that's the emphasis of that second line in verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. And the Hebrew emphasizes there that it's not just that something was laid, but it's a divine passive, again, implying that that God is the one who's doing the laying. So when God puts a yoke of suffering upon us, whatever it may be, understand that it is coming from him. And waiting silently here implies the the idea of confessing God's power over any and all of our circumstances. Again, because the yoke of suffering was placed upon us by God. And then Jeremiah goes a step further saying, let him place his mouth in the dust. And the uh, this expression is kind of derived from the, the the practice that to show homage to somebody to to show them reverence so you would go and you would prostrate yourself you'd lay down on the ground in front of them uh, and it implies a a humble silence because when your face uh, is on the ground and, and your mouth is in the dirt you can't say anything you can't speak uh, and so hey well, when you are suffering the the wise thing to do is to be silent. And to, to humble yourself before God, under under the mighty hand of God, you just need to lay in the dirt. And then Jeremiah says, it is also good, in verse 30, it is also good for a man to suffer and learn abuse at the hands of other people. So not only is it good for a man to humble himself under the hand of God, but also it is good for a man to suffer from the abuse of other people he says give the smiter your cheek let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and this is again this is what jesus is going to be echoing when he says uh, turn the other cheek right if someone s- strikes you on one cheek because of persecution you turn the other cheek to them he says this is a good thing for us to learn and then he says and let him be filled with insults. The idea of being filled It's a word that's used of eating your fill of food or drink, that you have consumed enough that you are full. And says, so, hey, let, let the young man learn to be full and, and satiated uh, with insults. And one commentator points out that in these three verses that there's, a, there's an increasing level of difficulty. Because there is a certain gradation in the three verses that is quite unmistakable. He says, The sitting alone and in silence is comparatively the easiest. It is harder to place the mouth in the dust and yet cling to hope. And it is most difficult of all to give the cheek to the smiter and to satiate oneself with dishonor. And so, again, how can all of this be good? How can this be good for us? Because usually when somebody else is attacking us, when we are having reproach and, and taunts and insult hurled at us, we're not like, okay, I, I want to get full of this because the Lord says this is good for my soul to take and absorb this. What can be good about this type of suffering? And ultimately, it, it works to humble us before God. It strips away our pride takes away our vanity and forces us to grow downward in humility. And in those moments when we are most humbled, that is where God does the most work in our lives. The the deepest and most profound lessons that we ever learn are usually from our experiences and from our suffering, especially when those experiences are rightly interpreted by God's word. Now there's a whole lot of experiences that we have in life that we don't interpret rightly. And ultimately they don't serve to humble us because we don't understand what the Lord was trying to communicate to us. That happens often. We have to understand our circumstances, our suffering and our experiences through the lens of God's word. I love, uh, what one author wrote in her book, the scars that have shaped me, uh, the author's name is Vanitha Rendell Reisner. She says this, she says, academic learning can be forgotten or discarded, but the lessons we learn from suffering are woven into the fabric of our being. They become part of us. She continues, in the midst of trials, I rarely feel that spiritual growth is happening. Often I'm depressed and I just, just trying to hang on. Life is gray, and I don't see God's work at all. But in retrospect, it is in the hanging on, the trusting in the dark, the waiting patiently for God, where real growth occurs. And as I've uh, said in, in in the past, uh, it's a, a well-known proverb that the burned hand teaches best. And that those lessons that we uh, that, that create that pain within us. Those are the lessons that really stick with us the most. It doesn't, doesn't mean that we have to learn that way, but that is what the Lord tends to use is our suffering, rightly interpreted through the lens of His Word, to mold us and shape us and to teach us to be dependent upon Him. And just because the Lord will humble us doesn't mean that we need to have a defeatist mindset. Again, sprinkled throughout all of this is that, that this idea that, that we can still have hope. And that second line in verse 29, where the first line says, Let him put his mouth in the dust. The second line, there may yet be hope. That indicates the frame of mind that we are called to, to have, to, to, that we are to, to humble ourselves before God, but we still have hope even in our humiliation, in, in our humbling. And the Hebrew phrase is more along the lines of perhaps Hope exists. The NASB translates it as perhaps there is hope. And the, the Hebrew word translated there is is a special word that is used to simply just describe something that is in existence. And it is often used of property because property just is. It is in existence. And the Hebrew word for hope is also the same word that's used in Jeremiah 29, 11. Where Jeremiah, in writing to the exiles in Babylon and promising that they 're going to be there for seventy years and they 're going to be returned home, this is what this is what Jeremiah writes to them. He says, "For I know the plans I have for you declares the Yahweh plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope so if we if we pull these ideas together. Jeremiah knows that hope exists, and he knows specifically that God has promised to bring his people back. And Jeremiah knows that because he's the prophet that made the prophecy. Uh, and so he prophesied that God is going to bring them back to their land, their property, in the future. And that was why God also told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah, even though there's a foreign government coming and conquering your land, I want you to go buy property. And their their hope exists because that land is still there. So Jeremiah understood that hope still exists even in the middle of God's discipline, uh, even in the middle of his own suffering and the suffering of his people. And, And putting all of this together, Jeremiah says, it is good for someone to humble himself to the dust because he believes and knows our circumstances come from the Lord, right? That's verse 28, when it is laid on him. By God. And whatever those circumstances may be laid upon us by the Lord, we can still know and say, we must echo what verse 24 said, that Yahweh is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. And, and if that isn't the conclusion that we come to, that these are the circumstances that the Lord has placed upon me and the Lord is my portion, He is my hope, if we if we turn to something else, suffering is not going to be beneficial to us. It's just going to be miserable. It's just going to be hard because we're not rightly interpreting our suffering through the lens of God's word. We're, we're going to come to a different realization. We're going to, we're going to grow bitter and, and angry and hostile uh, because of our circumstances rather than growing in humility and trust and faith so each of these truths flows into and supports the others. That the mercies of God are infinite. So we can always be looking and turning to him. It's not that, well, if I turn to God now, he's going to turn me away. No, that his mercies are new each and every morning. You can always turn to him. So in the middle of your suffering, you must turn to him, understanding also that your suffering is beneficial. And the goal of our suffering is to humble us before that God so that we turn to him and then he... in turn will be good to us out of his covenant keeping and steadfast love. All of this leads to the, the fourth reflection of Jeremiah here, and that is the discipline of God is finite. It's in verses 31 to 33, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And so after reflecting upon the character of God and the suffering uh, of man, Jeremiah turns his attention again back to God and God's hands of, of discipline. What he realizes is God's hand of discipline never stays on us forever. It is always there for a limited time. The discipline of God always relents. He doesn't cast us off forever. And the language of verse 32 shows there's a sequence in God's actions, a cause and effect. And if there's an occasion where God does need to... To bring judgment, if he does cause grief, then he will also have compassion. But in the Hebrew, it's not an equal equation. There those two things are not in balance. Uh, the, the emphasis is that the compassion of God that follows the sorrow is always significantly greater than the grief that he brought upon us. Uh, and that there is an intensification of the compassion of God. And the word for compassion there is the same Hebrew word that we go to in verse 22, the, the second line. His mercies, His compassions never come to an end. And that is why they are always greater than the grief that He brings upon us. And, and so we have this, this sequence, and that gives, uh, Jeremiah additional hope and encouragement. And then in verse 33, again, Jeremiah reflects that even though there are those times when God needs to afflict us or oppress us, and again, the Hebrew word actually means to bring someone into dependence upon you, right? If you do that in a harsh way, it's oppressing them. But if you do that in a kind and loving and gentle way, if you bring someone into dependence, that's exactly what God does in our suffering. And... What Jeremiah's point is there in verse 33, that even when God afflicts, it's not from his heart. He doesn't grieve the children of men harshly. There's no malicious intent on God's part. And you may have heard probably uh from some atheist or somebody who talked about, man, it's like the God of the Old Testament, he's so harsh and, and unkind and uh, vengeful and brings death and judgment. He's a wrathful God. You can say, well, there there is some part of that that we must agree to, but that's the same God in the New Testament also. It's the New Testament that says that God is a consuming fire. You know, we often focus on the the God is statement, God is love, but that's that's a less popular God is statement that He's a consuming fire. But we we have to understand that from the very beginning of human history, God's desire has always been to bless humanity. If you look at Genesis one, uh, when God created man and woman, he, he gave them instructions and he sa- it said that he blessed them. That is God's uh, immediate position and stance towards all of humanity. He desires blessing. and then Ezekiel eighteen verse thirty two says, God says, "For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live." Again, when, when God exercises judgment, when he disciplines his people, he never does that with malice or out of hatred. It's always done in love and with a desire for people to turn back to him. Again, there are times when God must judge, when he must discipline, but when he does those things, what this is saying is that his heart's not in it. Uh, he's not doing that with a hatred or animosity and... In these truths that Jeremiah turns and reflects to in this final portion, in these three verses, we see that what he reflects upon is that, hey, sorrow is going to end, that the mercy of God that follows is going to outweigh the grief, and that God never sends sorrow with malice. And that's what Jeremiah reflects upon here, that the discipline of God is finite and and our thoughts have to turn in that same direction when we are suffering. That, hey, this, this sorrow is also going to pass. And, and that God is faithful and that he will carry us through no matter what it is. As we, we look at all of this, as Jeremiah is grieving and weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem... It would have been easy for him to despair without hope. It would have been easy for him to be carried away by his thoughts. But instead of allowing despairing thoughts to guide him, he guided despairing thoughts towards the Lord uh, to think about the character of God. And he reflected upon the nature of God's mercy, which is infinite, and he reflects upon the nature of God's discipline, which is finite. And he reflects upon how God uses suffering in the life of his people to benefit us, that it is a good thing, and then it's a good thing because our suffering, our adversity brings us to the place of humility. We humble ourselves and turn and seek God. And again, God is good to those who seek and trust in Him. What's, what's amazing in all of this is, Again, the goodness of reflecting upon this. And if you zoom out and you look at the whole of the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew uh, Old Testament arranges things a little bit differently. And the, the Jews divide the, the Old Testament into three big portions. Uh, the law the prophets, which are uh, Joshua, Judges, Kings, uh, or Samuel and Kings, uh, and then the, the the four big prophets, they say, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the book of the twelve is a singular book in their mind. So there's four and four, and the older and latter, pro- former and latter prophets, and then the writings. And the writings encompass everything else in the Old Testament. So Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. All of these are are focused as the writings upon how the godly are to live in faith on earth while awaiting the kingdom of God. And what's amazing is sometimes in the order of books, uh, you can see little messages and what is communicated in that. And in for instance, in the the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, you have Proverbs uh which is followed by Ruth. Well what's the last chapter in Proverbs? Proverbs thirty one, which is about the excellent woman and the only other place uh that description occurs is in Ruth and again you have this description of the excellent woman and then an example of an excellent woman in Ruth well uh we have something similar here in the Hebrew order of the books uh we have Ecclesiastes and uh, Ecclesiastes if you if you turn to the end there uh, of Ecclesiastes it's going to have a a profound message the end of it is ultimately going to be that we are called to the end of the matter Uh, All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's how Ecclesiastes ends with a call for us to reflect uh, and fear God and keep His commandments and a promise of judgment if we don't do that. Well, the book that immediately follows Ecclesiastes is Lamentations. Uh, And so you have this immediate example that if we don't fear God, if we don't keep his commandments, if we don't look to him, here's an example of judgment. And here's an example of the suffering that comes from that. But but even within all of those things, as I said, the, ultimately the, the message of Lamentations is that there is uh, suffering that comes as a result of sin. There's a suffering that comes as a result of living in a fallen world, but there is always hope in the middle of that suffering. And Lamentations coming right after Ecclesiastes, I think is intended to communicate something to us. Again, the, the, the goodness of reflecting upon just the the nature of life, the brevity of life, uh, the reality of suffering and sin and living in a fallen world. And uh, may we reflect upon the judgment of God, but may we never end there. May, May we reflect upon his judgment, but also turn and and see and think about the the mercy of God that is extended to us, that is offered to us uh, at all times, because his mercies are new each and every morning. It's never too late. There's never a time when we cannot turn to God and have his mercy be bestowed upon us. Uh, His mercies are infinite, and all we need to do is turn and seek him.